This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 288 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Navy SEAL-turned-author Jack Carr. Now, in this conversation, we cover a host of topics from his deployments in the Middle East and even the Philippines, uh, training anti-poaching groups in Africa, the effect of deployment not only on a family unit, but having a special needs child, transitioning out of the military, and many, many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, though, please just take a moment and go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on. Rate the show, share the show, subscribe to the show. The more ratings we get, the five-star rating specifically, the more visible we are to anyone looking for a project like this. And as I said, this is a free library for everyone with a Wi-Fi connection. Simple as that, on planet Earth. And these men and women have taken the time to literally tell either a very powerful life story or a lot of their life's work. So all I ask is that you help share these incredible minds so we can get this information to every single one that needs to hear it. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jack Carr. Enjoy. Jack, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on with you. Brilliant. And we had Clint, one of your fellow authors on the show before, and um, you know, I was lucky enough to be connected with you. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, awesome. Clint, Clint Emerson? Yes, sir. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He would have <laughs> what great videos and books and everything else he has going on. That's great. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, very first, excuse me, very first question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? And again, you don't need to give exact coordinates, but just roughly... Got it. Yeah. Planet Earth. I'm in a, uh, actually in a nice snowstorm here in Park City, Utah. So we, uh, 
when we got out of the military, uh, my wife and I wanted to raise our kids in a in a ski town. So also wanted to leave that part of the the life behind of uh, life behind, both uh, psychologically and physically. So we we picked up and moved to Park City, Utah. So here we are today. Brilliant. And I want to explore the the transition out of the military. I think it's a very pertinent discussion. But um, starting from the very beginning, then I know you weren't born in in, in Utah. So where were you born, and what was your family dynamic? What did your parents do? Yeah, so I grew up in Northern California, and that was uh, all of my my childhood, really. And um, uh, my dad did a few different things, but uh, I was an attorney and uh, got into some finance stuff and some real estate stuff. So he did a few few different things. Uh, and my mom was a librarian, which is probably much more pertinent than uh, than my dad being an attorney or uh, in real estate, um, because we grew up all uh, as kids, but especially me, uh, with just a, a love of books and and reading. And, um, uh, she was really, we're surrounded by books at all times and, uh, she was a children's librarian. So she got, you know, she really got to pick books that, uh, and read to us from an early age. And then we started reading very early. And then I transitioned to books that my parents were reading because I was just, I just naturally gravitated towards books with, you know, military themes or, uh, you know, thrillers, adventure stories, uh, things that were about what I wanted to do one day when I got older. So, um, I think about fifth grade, I really started reading what my parents were reading. And, uh, uh at that time, I think, uh, hunt for red October came out, uh, right then when I was in fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. Um, and I just dove in because before the internet, before you could type in Navy seals on, uh, in the Google search bar, uh, the place where you learned what special operations were about, what special forces were, what seals were, was at the, at the local library and through books of fiction that had protagonists with those backgrounds. So I was reading guys like David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, Tom Clancy, uh, Stephen Hunter, all these guys growing up and uh, knew that one day I would one, serve my country in uniform as a SEAL, and then two, would someday write fiction. Those kind of books that I was just uh, enthralled with uh, growing up in the 80s. Brilliant. A total side note tangent, with your mother growing up as a librarian, did she ever transition to Kindles or does she still love you know, a traditional book? You know, a traditional book, but she does does do audiobooks when she's out, uh, you know, walking the dog or uh, gardening or uh, driving, whatever it is. She has made the transition to audio, um, but uh, but when she's home and uh, and not doing other things, then it's a uh, it's a physical book. And you know, I'm the same way. I I uh, you know, it's great that we have all these other ways that people can um, can enjoy books today. But for me, I do so much work now, either on my phone or my computer, that uh, when when I want to take a step back from that and really enjoy a book or I want to, you know, research something in depth, I have to have that, uh, uh, you know, that, that tactile feel of turning a page. And then I just like having that physical book on the shelf that I can just, I can see and I can turn around in my chair and I can, uh, push my chair over to and grab, <laughs> grab it off the shelf. And I just, uh, I love the actual physical book, but, uh, audio is the fastest growing segment of, of publishing right now. And, People love it, and I didn't know that when I got into this space, and I was very lucky that I chose a narrator for my first novel, and then my, my second, now it's gonna be the third, um, Ray Porter, who I didn't realize that these narrators also have a fan base, and people will follow them around just like they would you know, an author with a physical book. People will wonder, hey, what's Ray Porter reading next? And then they'll go 
listen to that. So it's a, it's a whole different deal that I had no idea even existed. And I yeah, got very lucky. Ray Porter, awesome guy. And the first book was up for audio book of the year. So we made it out to New York and we had our tuxes on together and we were sitting there in the audience. And uh, it was amazing to see the terminal list up there next to, next to Stephen King. So that was, uh, that was crazy and completely surreal. Yeah, no, it is. It's amazing. And, and I've noticed as a, as a listener, you know, an audio book can be made or broken by the person that you choose as well. I mean, I've heard some that it's absolutely pertinent, you know, and it fits that book beautifully. And there's some where it totally jars against the book and you're like, ah, I think I'm just going to read it actually. <laughs> Really? Oh no, <laughs> that's tough. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, yeah, I just got lucky cause I didn't, I didn't have a, I didn't know I was one. I didn't know I was going to be able to choose. Uh, and then two, I didn't listen to audiobooks, So I had no idea about, uh, well, one of that they brought a whole segment of an audience with them. Um, and I didn't have anybody in mind. So <laughs> Simon Schuster said, yeah, do you want to pick somebody? And they said, Oh, okay. And they said, uh, yeah, get it to us by, uh, it's end of business today. And it was like, you know, noon here. So creeping up on end of business in New York. So, uh, I just started going through and hitting those little sample things on, uh, on audible and listening to, uh, to samples of different narrators and, um, and Ray Porter just really stood out to me. Brilliant. Now I know that your grandfather was a, a huge influence on military service. So tell me that story. Yeah. So I think that's probably the reason that I took the the path I did because from a very early age I was surrounded by uh, by his medals, by uh, pictures of him and his squadron, by uh, uh, the silk maps they used to give aviators back in World War II. So he flew the Corsair, well, the F4U Corsair, which is the the same plane I was then watching about the time I became aware of these things on Black Sheep Squadron, which was a TV show in the late 70s, early 80s with Robert Conrad, starring as Pappy Boynton. And, uh, you know, so I made model planes of the Corsair and I did as much, uh, reading as I could on the, the history of, uh, of that plane. And then the, uh, the aircraft carrier that he was on when he was killed. And it's, uh, I just grew up with the idea of him as my hero and knew that one day I would go into the military, but, uh, I didn't know what part of the military yet. Uh, but I knew I was going to serve and that was really, it was a calling. So it wasn't just, uh, it, it, I guess that's the best way to describe it. There was really nothing else I ever considered doing in life. And then when I found out about special operations and I found out about SEALs also very early on, um, one through a black and white film and then uh, me asking questions to my mom and her taking advantage of me asking those questions by taking us down to the local library to do research. Um, you know, I found out that SEALs were some of the most elite uh, fighting forces in the world and that uh, the training was some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So. From, uh, from that very early age, age seven, I was uh, I was in, and uh, that's all. The, the recruiter had a very easy job with me. I was uh, I'd already done my research. I think I knew more about uh, uh, the military and special operations and the SEAL teams and the path to get in than than my recruiter did when it came time to to enlist. And uh, but yeah, my grandfather was uh, was the person, even though obviously I never knew him because he was killed uh, at near the end of the war. Um, just uh, the idea of him as my hero really set me on my path. That's amazing. Now, a question. Did you ever feel the, I don't know how to even put it into words, ghost spirit, you know, you, your grandfather kind of looking down on you? The reason I asked, my little boy knew my granddad, so his great granddad, just when he was, I mean, an infant, and he has been so connected to him spiritually. It's, it's bizarre. Like, he just, he, 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 it's like he knew him, even though he had no chance of knowing him because he was a baby. Did you ever feel that connection with this, you know, your grandfather that you never even met? Yeah, no, I, I don't think in, in, not in that sense. Um, it was more through the, through the photos, through the, uh, 
uh, through the silk maps, through his wings, through those medals, um, through those things that were just in, uh, I mean, a dusty old box. Um, because uh, when he was when he was killed, uh, my dad never met him because um, my dad was born when he was away at war, and uh, you know that wasn't a uh, that wasn't an abnormal thing for that generation. Um, and, uh, so I never felt it in that sense. I mean, I felt something similar with other, uh, family members who have passed on, but, um, you know, with him, it was just more of that, uh, you know, that, that link to a past that I would, uh, that I would never, you know, obviously never, never knew and never would hear about through him. Um, so I felt like it kind of was up to me to, to study that period, to, to, uh, uh, to, to study that plane, to, uh, kind of understand, uh, where he was, what he was doing, uh, when he was killed. Um, so more in that respect. Right. Now, obviously, you ended up becoming an elite tactical athlete. What about athletics through the school ages? What were you doing then? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was always thinking in terms of training for the military. Um, and yeah, luckily, my family was very, very active, you'd say outdoorsy. So we uh, we headed off into the into the Sierras backpacking. Um, and I was fishing and sailing and we did a lot of stuff outside. But sports wise, um, I played soccer cause that's what my, uh, my dad did and then played lacrosse a little later on. Um, and then I ran. So, and I, I think cross country running and doing the, those training sessions that I still remember doing in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, um, were some of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, there's be boxing in the ring and then jujitsu on the mat later on. Um, I think Trump that, um, but I did think back while I was in SEAL training, uh, not just to being in the ring and on the mat in jiu-jitsu, which were very difficult, but also uh, running those mountains, running those hills, running those trails uh, on, as I ran cross country and just pushing yourself, pushing yourself uh, beyond your comfort zone because you know, running is uncomfortable. <laughs> running uphill is uncomfortable. Uh, running uphill in a race is even more uncomfortable and uh just to learn how to thrive in that environment and treat it as as normal and always push yourself i think i learned some valuable lessons from uh, from those training sessions and i did think back on them all those years later when i was running through the sand with a you know the boat over my head in uh in seal training right and i asked a lot of people that, that have been very successful have done team sports and they've also done individual sports and it's it's interesting because we're normally sold, you know, especially in, in military, fire service, those kind of arenas where, oh, you need to be team sports and you learn how to be a team player. But I found that the individual sports brings a completely different set of skills. And like you're saying, it's it's you against you and, and your, um, you know, are you going to quit versus when there's a team, you can kind of almost get away with, you know, getting off the gas a little bit. Did you find that same with cross country versus soccer where you really were forced to look at yourself in the mirror? I don't know. I think I always just push myself regardless um, and uh, and continue to, to do so today. So I don't know if I ever thought of it really in those terms. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, without a doubt, the individual sport um, pushed me harder than the team sport. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about that when I when I look back. I've never really thought of it until just now, but um, but there's really no question about that. And same thing on the jujitsu mat. There's no, <laughs> you know, I, I got I was a very early adopter there and got in for the, in the early '90s when people didn't really know what jujitsu was. Um, and since then, I have not kept up with it. Just to be just to be clear, but uh, but back then it was a wow, it was a different different deal, and uh, it certainly did push me, especially when you're doing those training sessions where they keep putting fresh people out there uh, for you to fight, and uh, and you stay on the mat uh, the whole time. Like some of the 
some of the toughest things I've ever done were, uh, were right there, right there on that mat with fresh people coming in and you just keep going. And there's uh, you know, you can't, obviously you can't quit. You're in a fight. Um, and it's interesting today, like, like back then there was no CrossFit. There was no, you couldn't just Google, Hey, how to prep for, for seal training and have like a gazillion things pop up online. Um, you know, we just <laughs> figured it out and it was uh, run as far as you can, as fast as you can and lift as heavy weights as you possibly can. Um, like 1980s, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger style encyclopedia of bodybuilding. Uh, and you just kind of morphed those two and that was it. Uh, until people started getting a lot smarter about it, um, you know, in the early, early two thousands, uh, certainly by 2003, four or five. But, uh, but yeah, back when I first showed up at the team and we pretty much did the same things that, uh, that I had done to train, uh, for the military, which was just, uh, yeah, run and lift <laughs> old school style. Um, but I don't know today, I mean, you, people come in in such great shape with all the CrossFit stuff they're doing and then all the information there is out there about the training and how to train specifically for it um, with the, the stroke you're going to learn how to do in this in the uh, as far as swimming goes the underwater recovery stroke um, just all the things you can do to make yourself prepared physically um, but you know what we still have 80% attrition um, we have uh, fitter quitters these days is what they say yeah you know and I heard you say that with Jocko and I thought that was that was a really interesting observation because I think you see that with, with, for example, and I'm not saying everyone is gifted, but the people that are gifted, the one that, you know, that, that seem to excel, they definitely travel a slightly different path than, than the gritty, you know, let's say sports people, for example, that, you know, really have to outwork everyone else. I just had, um, NHL goalkeeper uh, Clint Malarchuk and he talked about that. He said he was just the toughest guy on the ice. He wasn't the most talented. He wasn't the best. Um, and so I think that work ethic, to, you know, creates the grit. Um, I heard Frank Yeager, the UFC guy, the other day say something which I'd never heard anyone refer to like this before, but it was so true. He says some people are scared of getting tired. So you could be a phenom, you know, an athlete, but have you pushed yourself to that horrible place over and over again, which I think a lot of people that aren't, you know, naturally gifted have to to keep up with the ones that are. Yeah, no, they're in, you know, you saw that in buds. You saw the people that had been either college athletes, high school athletes, even professional athletes show up and uh, quit uh, right away. And, uh, you know, you, people, you wonder why that is. And, you know, if you look at the paper, um, look at them on paper, there's no way they should have should have quit. They're at the top of their game and whatever it was, swimming or water polo or wrestling or triathlons or whatever it was. Um, but I think a lot of that is because they were treated Kind of like a, uh, a really nice sports car. And anytime something made a little noise, you know, they went right to the mechanic to, to get fixed up um, rather than that that car that's going to clank and <laughs> and smash through things and keep going. Um, so that's really, you know, what you're after. You're really testing for grit. And how do you uh, how do you test for grit without putting somebody through that crucible, without pushing them farther than they think they can ever be pushed, which is what Hell Week is all about staying up for a week and essentially being on the edge of hyperthermia for that, uh, that entire time. Um, and that's what we've chosen in the SEAL teams. And that's what, uh, and it, it tends to, tends to work. It finds that person that has that mental fortitude, that has that resiliency, that has that drive, that has that grit, uh, to make it through anything. So, um, uh, so yeah, I think you're, if people, some people are afraid of maybe getting tired. Um, but Hey, you know what? That's life <laughs> regardless. You get tired no matter what you do. I'm tired right now. Um, but 
<laughs> you're gonna oh you're gonna be tired you're gonna face adversity you're gonna get knocked down and uh all those things are gonna happen to you in seal training all those things are gonna happen to you in hell week all those things are gonna happen to you in the seal teams all those things are gonna happen to you downrange in combat and guess what if you never do any of that those same things are gonna happen to you in life and it's all about how you uh how you deal with them how you get back up and keep moving forward um both for yourself and for all those around you that are depending on you and then looking to you as an example Absolutely. Now, I know that, you know, one driving force for most people is that that burning desire, that understanding that why that, that's within them. You obviously wanted to do this role from a very, very young age. By the time you got to, you know, Bud's Hell Week um, timeline, when you're truly, truly being tested, what was your absolute underlying burning desire? What was your core why that got you through when everyone else was ringing the bell? I want to do the job and if you want to do the job and defend your country and then test yourself again, really in combat, you can't ring that bell. Um, so that was one. And then another thing I thought about when it was getting, when it was tough out there or whatever, um, was I thought about how really when you think of it in relative terms, people have been through a lot worse. And, uh, I thought about what people had sacrificed from really the inception of this country up until today. Uh, to give me the freedom to choose my path and to be on that beach in Ca Southern California, uh, tested myself in uh, in buds, testing myself in Hell Week, and I thought I got the guys that stormed the beaches at Iwo Jima, uh, the, uh, Normandy, um, facing elevated machine gun positions, um, and how they just they didn't have a choice. Um, and I, I had a choice and those guys gave me that choice to be there on that beach. They defended that freedom. And so I thought about that a lot and thought, oh, you know what? I can I can swim another mile here. I can I can push myself a little more. This is uh, uh, this really isn't that bad when you think of it in relative terms. Yeah. Now, when when you got in, it was pre 9-11. Is that right? Correct. And uh, it was <laughs> yeah. when we made it through, we all got to our SEAL teams and we thought that that we'd be kind of issued pagers right away and given all this amazing gear and we'd be zipping off all around the world on these secret missions all the time. And yeah, that was not how it was pre nine 11. It's uh, you know, we were, we, we showed up and they handed us a broom and said, uh, all right, sweep that quarter deck, uh, you know, change that light bulb, clean that toilet. Uh, so you were a new guy and, uh, then you had to really, you know, you pass buds. Okay. So you're tough enough to do that. Uh, but now it's time to, to really start learning and uh and prove that you could you could really work together as part of that team and then after september 11th of course everything everything changed and uh it really became what we all thought it was going to be uh pre-september 11th um so uh yeah and then of course it uh, it really kicked off and and we were we've been on that train ever since right now when you when you were in for the first few years were there any uh, people that you think of that were good mentors that set you up to to be a good seal yourself and obviously have a 20-year career ultimately yeah so it's a lot of people um well really before september 11th uh or sorry really before i came in the military um i met someone who was a uh, special operations uh it's called project delta in vietnam um it was a actually a precursor to what we uh, now know as Delta Force, Charlie Beckwith, the first commanding officer of that unit, was also a commanding officer of Project Delta in Vietnam. And, uh, and they did some, some of the most audacious missions of the Vietnam War. And uh, he was a sniper, uh, which I wanted to be one day. Um, so, and that was really the only person that I knew that had, uh, had been in the military and had been in special operations in particular. So him and then before the military also, 
you know, people that, uh, that I didn't know, but that I guess you would say today, you would say you follow them. Um, and, uh, back then, of course you didn't, there was no social media. <laughs> so I like that you, you read books and you, you read about what these people did in mostly, uh, if, for people that have been in the military, you know, their nonfiction works, a lot of them about Vietnam, about their experience in special operations in Vietnam. Um, so, so guys like that. And then in the fictional sense, I had mentors, the protagonists of these novels that I was reading, the protagonists of movies that had a, a special operations type theme to them. Um, so all those things, I mean, sometimes people discount the power of popular culture, but on me growing up in the eighties, pre-internet, uh, knowing what I wanted to do, those, uh, you know, it would be like somebody who wanted to play football, you know, watching the Super Bowl. Um, and that's, uh, wanted to, wanted to be a coach in the NFL, watching the Super Bowl, watching football on the weekends. Uh, I didn't do any of that sort of thing, um, because I knew I was going into the military. So everything I did really revolved around that. And then pre-September 11th, once I was in the military, um, there were very few Vietnam guys left. There were, there were a couple here and there, um, that had, you know, were passing on their lessons. They were on their, their way out by the time I got in. And, uh, so those guys, you know, just looking at them and thinking about what they did in the jungles of Vietnam. Um, so in that respect, those guys were, were mentors, but at the same time, once you hit that, once you open that door to the quarter deck and step foot in your first SEAL team, you're on a sprint, you're on a sprint to learn, you're a, uh, to be a sponge. Um, and then the, other than those Vietnam guys, there were just a few people around that had actually seen combat. Um, there were a couple of guys around from the, um, uh, from Panama invasion from the airfield there. There was uh, a couple guys around from Mogadishu. Um, and the guys from Mogadishu, those were the, those were the guys really that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'd hang on there every word, um, because even though it was a, a flashpoint, um, it was an intense one. And, uh, for them to have done what they did, adapted on the fly. Um, I was, I wanted to take all their lessons learned and, and internalize those uh, and be ready to, to incorporate those as, as part of me and uh, part of my tactical acumen moving forward. Uh, but then when September 11th happened, I mean, everybody was a new guy after September 11th. You've been in for 20 years and hadn't, uh, hadn't seen one, hadn't seen any combat. Um, you were a new guy on September 11th, which really made it unique. Uh, and not just those of us going down range were new guys. Our families were now part of this thing also. We'd all come up in an age where it was a different model, different paradigm. And now we were figuring it out, both families and operators uh, together. And, uh, you know, now it's, of course, now the model is you show up and you're going to go down range. You're going to find yourself in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, wherever you're going. Um, but back then when we showed up, you know, the families, you know, thought, okay, something might happen here or there, but really what these guys are doing is they're training and they're preparing for war. And then on September 11th, that war came. Yeah, exactly. And I've had a, a few of your fellow SEALs on here and some of them that were on, you know, really early was saying that you were training based on some of the conflicts before, whether it's jungle warfare or, you know, some of the other arenas. And now all of a sudden you're fighting in the desert, nowhere near, you know, a body of water. Um, and, and you had to, to shift your training and learn how to be more effective in the, the urban setting. Oh yeah. We, uh, we had really taken those Vietnam tactics and plopped them down, um, from the end of Vietnam up until September 11th, as far as our training went, uh, into urban environments, into desert environments, into mountain environments. Uh, and those same tactics that uh, worked well in the jungles of Vietnam, uh, when we actually went into combat in the mountains, in the deserts in urban environments, they didn't necessarily work as well as, uh, as we thought they would. So we adapted on the fly and, things uh things changed uh very quickly because they had to 
um, both on the ground and then with our training as well. So I credit uh, that the training departments with uh, adapting probably as quick as they possibly could to these to these new environments and incorporating the lessons learned from downrange, disseminating those lessons and really bringing training up to a level that would prepare us to go into combat in these urban environments, in these mountains, in these deserts, um, wherever it was that uh, that we were going. Uh, even what uh, was called CQB back then and is CQC today, so the close quarters combat, uh, we just showed up magically at our targets um, for my first few years in the teams. And we had been showing up magically at our targets from the end of Vietnam up until September 11th, meaning we'd show up at a training venue to do some uh, close quarter combat stuff. And we had, back then we had MP5s and we didn't really put any thought into how we got there. Was it helicopters? Was it Hiluxes? Was it uh, Humvees? How far was that? How, how Did we travel for days? Did we travel for hours? Uh, what happens if uh, something went down along the way? What happens if a helicopter got shot down? What happens if we got contacted on the way to the target when we all had MP5s? And no thought was put into that. We were just magically at our target and we'd run through and it was very cool um, and then we'd exit the building and that was the end of it we didn't have to leave we didn't have to get back to a base we didn't have to go coordinate and figure out where the helo was or if the helo could come and get us or if we had to go to a secondary type play extract or whatever um, so things changed after september when we had to travel to and from our targets and take into consideration what could happen to us uh, just on the way and then returning from those targets. Um, yeah, that was incorporated into, into training and, uh, yeah, training really stepped up. And by the time I left, oh man, it was tough and it was, it was awesome. Some of the best training, um, I'd have to say in the world. Right. Now, speaking of training, you trained under Jocko for a while. Tell me about that. I did. So I do my, uh, pre-deployment workups were under, under Jocko and he was fresh off the battle battlefield in Ramadi from his time there in '06. So, oh my goodness, we did a, I learned a ton and we did a, a lot of down man carries for a long, long distances, uh, the desert through these urban environments. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was great working under him and, uh, training under him and getting his debriefs cause he was involved. I mean, he was right there for every single, um, block of training for those, uh, um, what we called the, uh, field training exercises and he's watching and he's taking notes and he's going to debrief everyone uh publicly after it's done and um anyway i, I learned a ton from uh, from working under him and training under him for those uh those two pre-deployment workups that uh that i was fortunate enough to, to do when he ran training cell yeah well what you just said before is very pertinent and i had Jocko on the show and we we discussed this in in my arena and in, in, in firefighting um you've got some very aggressive awesome departments that are totally doing it right keeping that realism setting the bar high but there is a, a a large chunk which whether it's coming from administration or unions or whatever it is are taking away the realism a lot the training oh it's too hot it's too cold it's too rainy you know whatever it is um totally missing the point that that's when you're going to have these emergencies and it's very interesting that you said about how do we get there because that's something that we see we set up say a house fire you go in you put it out drag the dummy out, drop him on the front lawn, and that's it. Well, that's a human being that still needs to be intubated and, you know, taken to a hospital if it's an MCI scenario. You can't just pretend an ambulance went. You have to actually send them there and, and time how long it would take for them to even be available to come back again. So that's a very, very important lesson for our, our community as well is to actually real-time play out some of these events and not miss key parts of that overall story that may trip you up. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. For, and for you guys, yeah. What happens if an ambulance can't get in? What happens if it's in the middle of some sort of a, a riot or natural disaster? What do you do then? Uh, what if a helicopter can't fly? What if you can't land? What if you have to get them to an HLZ to get them out of there? Uh, all those things. Like it definitely does not end when you, uh, when you get out of that building for, and for us with our, with our targeted individual, um, and for you guys with, uh, with patients and maybe mass casualties. Yeah, exactly. Well, back to, to your deployment. So one thing I like to ask, um, and I, I'll kind of preface this question, the general public, you know, we, we're, we're sold certain reasons why, you know, we, certain people are sent out there for, for conflicts. You know, some people agree with it, some people don't agree with it, but I found a common denominator, which is pretty much every man and woman that's come on here that's been deployed has a moment when they're out there, regardless of the politics that got them to that point, whether it's the Falklands War or Iraq or whatever it was, where they saw things and they were like, all right, these, these are horrible people. So regardless, you know, we're going to, we're going to carry out this mission. And not that they would question it, but you know, like the internal ethical part of it. Did you, did you have any moments where you, kind of witness some sort of atrocities where you're like, okay, I, I do understand now that, that these people need to be removed from this planet. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I've done so much study before I entered the military and then I was in it pretty quickly after September 11th. I was very fortunate enough to be de- deployed and to go uh, uh, first to do shipboarding operations and then to, to go to Afghanistan shortly thereafter. Um, it's uh, So I, I didn't have a moment of realization where I looked down and said, oh, now I see why we're doing this. Um, or now I see why these, I don't know, I hate to say use the word these people because I also had amazing experiences, um, with people over there, um, and just saw them really as, uh, you know, normal people. They just wanted to raise their kids and, and, uh, and, and not get blown up. Um, but of course, just like in any culture, you have evil people that, um, that are doing things. And in this case, specifically targeting civilians, um, as part of their tactics. And, you know, I, what I saw on our side was that we took great pains to never, uh, obviously not intentionally target a civilian, but that kind of the collateral damage piece. What I saw is that if there was ever an instance where there was a possibility of collateral damage, it was a no-go. And we put our lives on, we, we, we took on that risk ourselves where it would be much safer to take out an entire building or whatever we have such massive uh uh, you know firepower that we can do those sorts of things um but we wouldn't because of that collateral damage um so i so oftentimes that's the only thing that differentiates us from the enemy um, is their deliberate targeting of civilians um and are taking great pains to not do that um other side not the other side but in conjunction with that same thing with our prisoners when uh when you have a prisoner and i talk to my guys about this uh almost ad nauseum um or i incorporate i shouldn't say that i incorporated into training um the question of hey you have you have this person that maybe maybe they just they killed a u.s soldier they killed one of the guys in our platoon now we have them and they're they're handcuffed and zip tied uh, now what do we do well as americans our responsibility is now to keep that person alive and give our lives for theirs. That is the only thing sometimes that differentiates us from that enemy. Uh, but to get back to your original question, uh, 2006 with the uh, Golden Mosque bombing when essentially Iraq really disintegrated into that Sunni Shia civil war. Um, that was, uh, I wouldn't say eye opening, but that was probably the worst that I saw as far as um, human beings 
being um, just, I mean, you can't really use strong enough words to, uh, to describe um, what, uh, what those centuries, the old uh, gripes caused uh, people to do to one another um, just because of that difference and the difference in the same really. Um, so that was probably the time where, uh, I was like, oh, wow, this is serious. What are we doing in the middle of this? <laughs> Why are we in the middle of the Shia conflict? Uh, and, uh, and that really also caused me to, uh, study it a lot more. Um, cause up until that point after September 11th, it was really, uh, or when September 11th kicked off, it was okay. Tactics, 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 um, kicking in these doors, doing the thing, going after the, going after the bad guys, going after our targeted individual, building a pattern of life on them, dragging them back, doing interrogations, um, and then taking out the next person on the way up the ladder or, uh, whatever it, it might be and getting really good at using Intel, using disassociated human networks, corroborated by some technical means to make sure we're going after the right person for the right reasons. Um, but, uh, after that Sunni Shia thing, I, I took a breath there and thought, oh, yeah, I might need to study this culture a little more to get a better idea of what's actually going on here because uh, these people are killing each other in the streets by the thousands. Um, and I should probably be a little bit more better versed on what's going on so I can then talk to my guys about it uh, and explain uh, it to them if they have questions and put it in its proper context, um, what we're doing there, why we're doing it, and uh, uh, and keep them focused on the mission because of, uh, of my knowledge base. So um, I really started studying insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, uh, the history of all that. I studied it up until that point, but I really dove in um, when I saw what was going on after the Golden Mosque bombing, bombing in 2006. Yeah, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy what people do in the name of religion. And, and just to bring it way back to, to where I grew up, you know, Ireland, I mean, you had the Catholics and the Protestants doing the same things to each other over what I could see as a layman, the same exact religion. So it's, it's, it's crazy the, the, the level that people get to when they're conditioned and raised with that doctrine and an extremist, you know, side, of course, that they will literally be willing to die and kill other people just to say that they're right about <laughs> a religious book. Yeah. No, and that's, and then it, uh, it forces the populace, the people that just want to live and get their kids to educate their kids and, and, uh, and not get, not get blown up and be, you know, be safe. And, um, it causes them to choose a side. So, uh, they're probably gonna choose the side of the people that are threatening to behead them if they don't choose that side, uh, that sort of thing. So it's a tough position for, for those people to be in over there, especially the ones that, uh, that just want to live. Yeah. I had a, a gentleman, Ishmael Bay, he was uh, a boy soldier in Sierra Leone. And when I say that he, he was a boy in Sierra Leone until his parents were murdered and he was going to be murdered if he didn't join this, you know, group of guerrillas. Um, and he was actually rescued about three years later by the American Red Cross. But again, you look at him, you're like, you know, what a piece of shit until you again, just like you did reverse engineer what's going on. And you're like, well, this, these children don't have any choice at that point. They're drugged up. They're basically threatened with their own lives. And again, it takes it takes that de-escalation to 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 break that generational conditioning where we stop these men and women being raised uh, as these extreme terrorists. Yeah, no, it's a, I, I definitely am a fan of the full spectrum type approach. I mean, um, yes, there's a and the, the thinnest slice of that and the easiest slice of that is building intel packages and going after someone to capture or kill them like that's 
probably the easiest part of this. The hardest part of this is figuring out um, what were those underlying conditions that uh, that caused this in the first place, and then and then what do we do? And then how do you how do you not necessarily counter, but uh, how do you adapt and and uh, and cause a change? This is the uh, that cycle. How do you break into that cycle? Something that's been going on for thousands of years, and even can you? And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you can't, um, but uh, it's it's definitely something that I think about. And luckily, my part of that was the uh, was the easy part, which was really just going after these guys and kicking in those doors and and uh, dragging them out of their beds in the middle of the night, just like any police force is going to do any single in any single major city in the U.S. on any given night to serve warrants. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. It just happens to be in uh, in Missoul, in uh, in Baghdad, in Ramadi, um, whatever else. And maybe some of those people have suicide vests or that sort of thing. So there is I guess there's another little element to it there. But uh, but essentially it's the same thing. It's building a building a pattern of life and going and taking these guys off the chessboard. Yeah. Now, well, speaking of extremism, a country that people don't normally think of that I know that you spent some time was the Philippines. And my wife's actually half Filipino herself. What were you seeing there politically and and, and, with the extremism in that country? Yeah, that was amazing because I was prepped to go to Afghanistan for that one. And then uh, thing, well, actually, first Iraq. And then and you think after 20 years of doing this that uh, or at that point, it was like, 10 years, um, that we'd have it down. We'd pretty much figure out where we're going to go would train up, uh, specifically focused on those areas, uh, so that uh, it wouldn't be a surprise, but no, that's not how it is. It's, uh, you, know, you might train up for a certain thing at the last second, some decision somewhere up the chain of command shifts and you go somewhere else. So, um, I think it was, we were set to go to Iraq for most of that workup. Uh, but then Afghanistan started coming up on the radar again, and then we were going there and at the last second it switched and, uh, off we went to the Philippines. I think that's how that went down anyway, but interesting, totally different than what I've been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan previously. Um, cause this was definitely, uh, an advise assist mission that we've been doing for a while with a group of people, uh, the Filipino Marines, who have been fighting an insurgency in the Southern Island chain um, since the late 1800s, really. So they had generations of corporate knowledge that had been passed along. So for me, um, I really became a student and a student of the Filipino Marine uh, general who I was attached to in the Southern Island chain on this little, in this little base on this little village and base is a, it's not really a base. It was just, you know, surrounded by some barbed wire and some thatched huts. Uh, and uh, but I had time there because it wasn't the type of environment where you were going out every night, kicking indoors and doing what I just described, uh, uh, moments ago. It's, uh, it was a lot different down there. They, they operated in a way where they would hit do big pushes, larger campaigns, um, to take out a group of, uh, insurgents, uh, that held territory. Um, and not just the territory of the populace, like I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, they did that too, but they also held some physical territory. Uh, and then they'd come back in after these campaigns. So it was, it was interesting to see the, uh, uh, the different approach, um, different groups that were, uh, that had morphed over time from maybe being terrorist organizations to then more of criminal gangs just to survive with the kidnap ransom type trade. And then back to being terrorist organizations, uh, and insurgents again, or a, a morph of the two. Um, so that was a really interesting time down there. And it also gave me a little more time to study 
and to study these insurgencies, study these counterinsurgencies, what had worked, what is different, uh, what works on home turf, what works when something's a uh, expeditionary counterinsurgency, meaning it's not your own country in which you're fighting this insurgency. Um, and uh, got to work out a lot too and shoot a lot at the range. So that was that was nice, I guess. But uh, I really took advantage of the time uh, not going out every night. And I took advantage of, uh, uh, and when I say going out every night, I mean going out to target someone. Um, I really took advantage of that time to study and learn. And I was very fortunate that the uh, Philippine Marine General took me under his wing. Uh, his intelligence chief took me under his wing. And I've, um, that was the relationship. It was kind of a, a student-teacher relationship, a mentor-type relationship. And I, um, I absorbed as much as I could, uh, hoping that it would make me a, a uh, you know, a better special operations guy moving forward. So it was an interesting place down there. And I look back on it very, uh, very fondly when I think back on my, uh, my time in uniform. Yeah. That's something I hear a lot from, from your, you know, your arena, SAS, SBS, you know, SEALs, uh, Green Berets, where you do, you know, interact with all these forces from different countries. And, um, you know, that's something I talk about in this podcast quite a bit is other areas that another country is doing better. And and sometimes I feel like, um, you know, as a nation, our ego gets in the way of saying, well, you know what, Finland is doing education better, or, you know, Portugal is doing drug policy better. And, and I wish that we would be as open minded as the special forces, special operations community in looking at other countries as as a, as a nation and saying, how are you doing healthcare? How are you doing this? You know, is it working for you? All right, well, and maybe we should start doing it that way because you were having so much success. Yeah, at least study and take the take the lessons and incorporate it into what's different in your area. So what we saw in Afghanistan and even in Iraq were that uh, you know you couldn't broadly apply. A, even though we did, because <laughs> that's for a gigantic bureaucracy as a nation, um, these policies into an entire country, uh, especially one that has a hard time conceptualizing what a country is and what those borders are. Um, rather, they think in terms of uh, you know villages and territories and uh, kind of strongmen and warlords and uh, familial relationships um, and that sort of thing uh, that are different from area to area, sometimes village to village, uh, certainly city to city. So uh, we don't really get that as Americans. We think Afghanistan, then we think Iraq, then we think Syria, then we think Philippines. Um, but within those countries, things can be very different when you uh, you cross over from one warlord's territory into another. And maybe what works in one place might not work so well in another, uh, even though they might just be miles apart in what we consider the same country. So uh, we're not that good at that as Americans, um, or I should say Westerners in in general. But uh, there's there's definitely something there if, uh, if you put boots on the ground and study it long enough. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then um, I know before we get to you transitioning out, um, let's talk about your little boy. So so you were you were still deploying when you, when you were having kids at home. Yep. So, uh, yeah, first one came along, I think for the fifth deployment, right before my fifth deployment, maybe. Yep. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so that was, I guess a little, little different, but, um, yeah, I've deployed a couple of weeks after our first, uh, child was born and it's, uh, you know, that didn't seem 
abnormal. <laughs> your normal is very different when you're when you're in, um, and the pendulum really has to be on the side of the team because that's what, especially as a leader, because that's what you owe the guys under your command. That's what you owe them, their families, uh, the country, the mission. Like that pendulum has to be on the side of the team. There's there's not a balance there, and people talk about having that balance, and senior leaders talk about having that balance, but no. And you're going downrange, and you're taking guys downrange. Uh, what they deserve is every single part of you. Um, so if we weren't training, then I was studying the enemy. I was studying these tactics. I was studying lessons learned from people that were there because the enemy's adapting to us. We're always adapting to them. And uh, yeah, it's just that constant game of adaptation. And typically, whoever does it uh, faster than their opponent's gonna gonna win. So you have to stay up on that. And I didn't want to have something happen downrange. And for me to be thinking for the rest of my life, oh man, if only. I had read that one other book. If only I had done that one extra run in the uh, in the Mount Thurman city. Um, if only I'd had that one more uh, meeting to talk about this. Or if only, I didn't want any of the if onlys. I wanted to be all in. And I think uh, you know, I think you have, you have to be. Um, anyway, that's how I how I did it. Anyway, but uh, even with kids, and that's tough to you know, tough tough to say, but it's the it's the truth. Um, so yeah, had, uh, had kiddos for the, uh, the last couple deployments, not for the, not for the first few. Um, and then, uh, yeah, for that, uh, that's my second to last one is that Philippine deployment. Um, that's when we had our middle child who, uh, was born with something. We didn't really know what it was, but, uh, it was obviously something was amiss. And, uh, my wife dealt with that because as I said, I was focused on the team. And so she dealt with all of that and uh, not knowing what was going on and something that was uh, manifesting itself as a global development, developmental disability, uh, physically, mentally. And uh, we really didn't know what it was until after my last deployment when I got uh, when I got home and had decided then to get out because it was time to focus on the family and it had been a, been a good solid run, but it was also the point in my time in uniform where I was not going to lead guys tactically on the battlefield anymore. Uh, I started enlisted, became an officer and, uh, as an officer, I'd made it to that 04 rank, which is the rest of the military is a major. And for, uh, the SEAL teams in the Navy, that's a Lieutenant commander. And, uh, I decided it was time to, time to get out. And it was, uh, shortly thereafter that someone told, uh, Ross Perot, our story, Ross Peru, who's who, uh, passed away um, less than a, less than a year ago here, but um, over last summer. But he found out about what was going on and that we had a middle child that we couldn't figure out what was going on with. And he said, "Get him on the phone." So <laughs> he called me out of the blue, and uh, yeah, sounding much like uh, Dana Carvey impersonating Ross Perot on Saturday Night Live. And uh, he said that uh, we're going to send the plane and we're going to take you out here to Texas and we are going to uh, figure out what's going on with your son, essentially. So uh, and he did just that about a month later, sent the plane and assembled a team of genetic specialists and found a researcher actually in the Netherlands who had just discovered this new genetic mutation. And uh, our son was the um, 13th person in the world that they'd ever found with this. And um, that's one of the main reasons that we moved to uh, to Park City, because there's a an amazing place out here called the National Ability Center and they actually do a lot of veterans um, that are dealing with uh, TBI, PTSD, uh, amputations, um, whatever it may be and gets them and their families uh, outside doing a cool thing, getting them on rivers, getting them on the mountain skiing, getting them rock climbing. Um, it's just an amazing facility that the Marriott family, uh, the Marriott Hotels has been very instrumental in building up and 
and uh, they they help people of all abilities and disabilities. So that's one of the main reasons we're here is because uh, because of that. And we can get our little guy out there doing things that uh, we never would have imagined he could possibly do in Southern California. So um, that's one of the other reasons that we're out here in uh, beautiful Park City, Utah. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned that there's very, very few diagnosed cases of this. So for everyone listening, just in case there's a parent that's wondering, you know, that maybe one of their children is is suffering from something, what were the the things that you were seeing? Uh, my wife really saw it all earlier. And I was so focused on the on the team. So first, it was just a sense. And then it was not meeting those milestones. And, uh, you know, not being able to, to focus his eyes, um, low muscle tone, not being able to stand, not being able to walk, not being able to form a, a, a word. Um, so all these things um, that uh, just compounded kind of over time. And as he got a little, little bigger, it uh, became more and more obvious. Um, but really, you know, when I say he's 13 in the world, there are so many more out there that just didn't happen to have someone that knew Ross Perot um, that could get them this diagnosis. Um, and then when you think of all these developmental disabilities together, even though they might be different gene mutations or different, uh, you know, different actual um, issues, uh, when you put them all together, it is a huge number of people that are dealing with um, with these um, with these uh, childhood developmental disabilities, and uh, it's tough. And you know, I don't spend too much time thinking about the odds. In fact, I just discard them as soon as I as I hear them. Um, same thing, like just like for buds, eighty percent are going to quit. Well, okay, I'll be in that twenty percent. Um, you know, I heard that something about uh, or staying married in the SEAL teams, uh, particularly after September 11th, you know, low odds. Um, and then same thing with, uh, with this staying together as a family, um, when you're dealing with something like this, it definitely makes things difficult, but everybody's going to face something difficult. You know, ours happens to be this, uh, everybody's going to face something and it's, it's really all about how you, how you step up and, and deal with it. And for this particular situation, um, I've tried to think of it anyway as um, as a positive for the family and that that makes us all more loving, compassionate people. Uh, hopefully it makes our other kids more uh, more loving, compassionate people as well as they move forward uh, because they've had to had to grow up like this. And it's also important for me not to have their childhoods uh, solely defined by their brother's condition. So we, uh, we do obviously have to pay a lot of attention to him because he needs help doing everything, uh, from eating, uh, to everything. So, uh, for the other kids, we do make, uh, uh, we do spend a lot of time with them, making sure that we get outside together, get to go on trips together. Um, that, uh, I'm very cognizant of, uh, needing to spend that special time with the other kids. So I don't want them to be 20 years old, 30 years old, looking back and saying, Oh, look, my, uh, uh, but my, my parents never did anything with me or never paid any attention to me um, because my childhood was solely defined by taking care of my brother. So it's uh, it does take a lot of effort and energy. But I think being able to articulate that and being able to think that through uh, instead of just running around like a crazy person all the time, just trying to essentially survive and stay alive, like just like in a gunfight, you don't want to just survive. You want to prevail. Same thing in life. Like you just don't want to survive this thing. Um, you want to prevail and you have uh, you have one chance to do it. This is your one ride. So, um, and you're going to get thrown, you're going to get dealt a, a bunch of different cards. And sometimes, you know, those hands are not going to be good. 
and you're going to have to play them as best you can. So, uh, so you know, these are the cards that, that we were dealt, and hopefully, uh, you know, we're doing it as best as we can and maybe being uh, an inspiration to some other people out there that are looking, that are dealing with something similar or something that's not similar, something that's just, uh, uh, just adversity in general, whatever it might be, uh, that, hey, you know what? you can get back up and you can keep moving forward because that's what, uh, what life is all about and how you do that and how you carry yourself, um, how you influence those around you by, uh, by dealing with those cards and how you play them. That's, um, you know, that's, that's really going to be your, your legacy. Absolutely. And it's interesting, like the last probably five years or so, I, I've just, it's amazing to see how the adaptive community has shown the world. Cause I mean, it's obviously a global movement. Um, the, to change the philosophy. We used to we use the word handicap. Oh, that person's handicapped. They're in a wheelchair, whatever. And now it's the complete opposite. It's like, all right, well, here's, you know, here's what I'm not able to do in this way. So let me show you how I'm going to do it in a different way. And so it's, it's incredible to see the ingenuity, not only from the athletes, but also the, you know, the, the gym members or the center owners and the designers to take someone, for example, who is wheelchair bound and say, you know what? You can surf. You know, I'm going to strap you to me and we're going to go on the surfboard together or whatever it is. And, you know, taking these men and women and giving them the same experiences as the quote unquote able bodied people, you know, that, that they see doing it before. So what are, what are some of the things that, that your son loves to do now he's able to do it at the center? Oh, it's incredible. Like it's, uh, and it, it's, it's inspiring. Not, and obviously not just our, our son, but when we go to, to places or we, uh, you know, we see what these other people are doing and they're, you know, mountain biking, but they have, you know, their legs got blown off in Afghanistan and they're pedaling this thing with their arms and, um, or people on the mountain, um, that are in these adaptive ski things. And it's, it is absolutely incredible and so inspiring. It makes you go, Oh, you know, I guess, what happened to me today uh, isn't really that big of a deal. Um, I there, look at this, look at what this person is doing. Um, they're water skiing and they got their uh, you know they made, they were born without arms and legs. Like how is that possible? And look at their smile on their face. Um, like that's the inspiring part. It makes you go, oh, I guess that that promotion I didn't get at work might not be the biggest deal now. Um, you know what? I've got all my fingers and toes. Uh, I've got a family. Um, uh, maybe I should put this in its proper perspective. Um, so it's really the, the inspiration that I see from from these athletes that is just uh, incredible. Um, when I go to like National Ability Center on my uh, on my phone and I go to check and look at their Instagram and I see someone shooting a bow, but they ha- they they only have one arm and they're using their mouth to pull back this bow um, so that they can experience archery. Um, is oh my gosh, it's absolutely just uh, just blows me away every time and is so inspiring. So, um, hopefully, the our you know, our kids are around that a lot, so they uh, you know, hopefully, they see that and and take away that same inspiration. But uh, yeah, our little guy gets they get him on the little a rock wall and they put him on a zip line, and he loves feeling the the uh, air in his face as he just goes down this zip line. And they somehow they put him on a <laughs> on a uh, uh, inner tube on the, this lake that's nearby and pulled him like uh, behind the boat and it's uh, a big smile on his face as he loves having the feel in the wind in his hair and and all that so um it's uh it's pretty special that's amazing all right well then getting to transitioning out because i know that's what got you there as well being close to the center um i had many people from the military on here for, you know, law enforcement fire um and i think that transitioning out is a, is a very pertinent area because there are people that set themselves up for success that have done very well and obviously jocko is a perfect example of that and then there's many of us that struggle with that identity i'm a fireman you know and so 
you know, what, what were the things that you did to prepare yourself to have, you know, the, the, the Jack Carr identity rather than the Navy SEAL identity when you transitioned out? Yes, I just made a conscious decision to, uh, to turn the page. And I was very fortunate that I was at uh, my last couple of years, I was at a uh, command where I wasn't taking guys down range. So I had the opportunity to take a breath and really think about this stuff because I'd seen people try to get out and have a very hard time leaving behind that past life. And they were always trying to, you know, come to the, come to the team or take people on tours of buds or go to these, uh, you know, seal foundation type events and stay in the same towns. It would see the same guys at the bars, at the grocery store, dropping the kids off at school, picking them up at school, um, whatever it is. And also not know what they were going to do next, even though they were already out. Um, they hadn't found that next mission. They hadn't found that next purpose. And it's very easy in the military because you have your mission. Um, and, uh, you're responsible for those guys to your right and left. The decisions that you make, um, are going to affect them and their families, uh, forever. So you have a mission and you have very clear focus. Now, when you get out, you need to find that again. And I, I identified that very early on because I saw people not doing it. And I also knew what I wanted to do. So I knew that I was going to write. And I'd known that since I was a, a little kid as well. So that was already that was already in part of my my calculus. And I didn't think one second really, well, maybe one second about uh, how hard it was to get published or anything like that. Um, I just said, okay, God, this is what I'm going to do. And I've been really training for this my whole life by reading all these books, not just the uh, the fiction that I read growing up, but the nonfiction that I used to study warfare, terrorism, insurgencies. Um, and then I had, a pra had my practical application of those things from the battlefield. From, uh, from those years at war, going down range. So I could combine them all at the right time in the right place, I think, um, which is what makes the novels what they are. But I identified that. So I figured something I wanted to do that I knew I wanted to do from an early age, uh, and then I got after it. And I also decided to turn the page on the military. And it's obviously just like anything you do in life. It doesn't matter. It's not to be the military, um, but it's your past in general. It's, uh, it's part of who you are today. Um, but I don't live back there. It's, uh, hopefully it makes me a better, a better writer, a better author, better, uh, husband, better father, uh, better citizen. Um, but I don't live back there in the past, but it's a part of me. It can't not be just like with anything anyone does in their past. It's, it's a part of you and, uh, how you internalize those, the lessons from what you did in the past, uh, and, and how you use that to go forward in a productive way. Like that's what's, that's, what's important. But you also need to find that purpose. And, uh, you know, that one was essentially handed to me as well. So that's with our with our middle child, just knowing that uh, that we had to that raising him for a, with a lifetime of full time care. That's a, you know, that's a, a lot of weight. And I, you know, I feel it pretty much every day. But um, setting him up for a lifetime of full time care and also raising two other children so that they don't feel that their childhoods are solely defined by their brother's condition. Like, OK, that's my purpose. So I got it. So uh, I turned the page on, uh, on what I did in the past and uh, and move forward identified that purpose and then i also found something that i wanted to do and something that uh, i wanted to do since childhood so i think those are the the key ingredients for me anyway and i'm not saying that's it's for everybody but uh, i think it was very healthy 
for us to uh, to pick up and move, go somewhere else uh, to help turn that page psychologically and physically by moving up to the mountains and then identifying that purpose and, uh, and finding that thing that you're passionate about. And for me, I am passionate about writing. I love writing um, and uh, and being an author and uh, growing this thing and writing the next book and, um, you know, growing this, essentially growing this business. Um, so I love all of that. Uh, I have my purpose and uh, and I've turned the page on, uh, on the last chapter of my life, but it's still a part of me moving forward. So that's, uh, those were the ingredients for me. And like I said, it might be different for, for everybody, but for me, those were the, that's what I saw as the most, uh, most healthy way to, uh, to transition out of special operations and into the private sector and, and keep, uh, keep pushing forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing I think in, in my, you know, first responder arena as well is we're there, the, the kind of carrot on the stick is the pension, you know, and, and the love of the job is there. That's why we all do it. But as people get deeper into their career, financially, you know, benefits wise, like, well, if I stay, you know, 25 years and I get this, I get, you know, 30 years, I get this, um, which is all well and good if you're all in those entire 25, 30 years. But what ends up happening, I mean, this, that job beats you the hell down, you know, with, with the, with any busy department. Um, and so literally, you know, you get people that have the countdown timer on their app. Well, I've only got one year, seven months left. That's a horrible, horrible philosophy to have, I think, on life. But what I try and tell people is, you know, you've served for X amount of time, whether it's 10 years, whether it's 30 years. If you get out healthy, then figure out what you want to do next. It's not go go stand on a golf course and, you know just wait to die it's like you have all that entire skill set as a police officer as a medic as a firefighter take that just as you done with writing and figure out how can i do something else that you know is probably going to be something that helps the world because that's the kind of person you are but use that skill set and transition into something else that you love and that might make you decide you know what 14 years which is what happened to me that was enough. Like I started this and, and actually retired to focus on this because it was making a difference. And I've struggled with the identity side, but then I realized, well, you know what? This again, you said about turning the page. This, this is time to do this now. So I think giving people permission to say, you've done enough. Now go do something else, whether it's be with your family while your kids grow up, whatever it is, that's something a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. I don't think we do them favors by calling it retirement. Um, it's just precision in language reflects precision in thought and to call it retirement for someone's 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, like they're going to look at it as retirement. Um, for me, I never thought of it as retirement. I never, I would have paid to do the job that I did. Um, I never thought of it as, uh, you know, for that paycheck. I never really, I never thought of it in terms of, Oh, what can I what was my retirement going to look like? Okay. I didn't spend a second. In fact, I did the opposite. Um, I didn't want to look at it as retirement. I didn't want to look at, um, how I could maximize it or how much money was going to be coming in and budget it and think that for me was wasted bandwidth. I considered it zero, um, uh, as I moved forward and got out of the military. Um, and yeah, it's nice to have a, you know, a little bit coming in, I guess, but I don't even, my wife sees that. I don't even see it. I never even, I don't even know what it is. Um, cause I wanted to be focused on all my bandwidth, focused on writing, focused on, um, uh, moving forward and making this a, a success. Um, I didn't want to be counting pennies for something that's really not that much money, but it's all relative, right? So for a lot of people in the world, 
yes, that retirement is probably a huge amount of money. Um, for me, I consider it zero because I never wanted it to play into my calculus. I wanted to get out, be hungry and just keep sprinting forward and do the things that I wanted to do instead of like, Oh, how much do we have coming in from the retirement from the military? Okay. Uh, okay. I have no idea. Um, and I don't even want to know. Um, but I think we can get too fixated on that especially as guys are transitioning out because a lot of that transition process is about the retirement um, uh, piece. Um, and so that's all bandwidth that's not focused on figuring out how to turn that page, figuring out what your next purpose is in life, figuring out your passion and how to combine all those three things to be successful as you move on into another chapter because you're stuck in the past. You're stuck still on figuring out that retirement and, and you're still in that last chapter of life. Um, so for me, and I'm not saying is the right thing for everybody. Maybe for some people like, yes, count those pennies and figure it out. Maybe that's the right thing for them. For me, it was not the right thing to do. Um, and it was very obvious to me. It was not the right thing to do. What was obvious to me was to consider it zero and to charge out of those gates and into this next chapter in life. I love that. I really do. I think that's a great philosophy. And I basically did it by force. I, I paid myself my pension. I took the, the whole thing out to pay for a year and a half of salary while I you know carry getting this off the ground and and that was it so there is no retirement now it literally is zero so i <laughs> put myself out on the on the cliff ledge but you know it forced me to to make it work so i love that um right well then let's talk about writing so during your deployment obviously you know these, these books i know came towards the end did you write short stories or, or any kind of writing you know the the 20 years prior Nope. I, uh, I read. And luckily I had that foundation from growing up, that love of reading. And I really credit that with, um, with teaching me the elements of storytelling. Um, my mom introduced me also to Joseph Campbell, uh, very early on. So he did a, he, he wrote a book called the hero with a thousand faces and he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers in 1988 on PBS called the power of myth. And I watched that with my mom and I really, they talked about, uh, just like in hero with a thousand faces, how the hero's journey across cultures really from the beginning of time to today, uh, follows some similar themes. And, uh, typically there's a, a reluctant hero that, uh, that goes on a journey. He meets a mentor, along the way to give him some piece of knowledge or maybe a tool to help him in his quest. Uh, he's tested along the way in some sort of a crucible and then he emerges transformed on the other side and typically goes back from whence he came to pass on those lessons to the next generation. So, um, you know, seeing that so early in a time when I was uh, very influenced by these books I was reading, uh, and mo movies, that I was watching, um, I could apply that to what I was reading and what I was watching. And that was really educational and that I could say, okay, well, I didn't like this movie. Well, maybe why is that? Oh, because it didn't, uh, it didn't address this or that book was okay. Why was it just okay? And why is this other one so amazing? Um, and so it's really that foundation in reading that, uh, it was, there was never a question of if I could, could write or not. Um, and of course I did professional writing in the military and I loved in you know, junior high and high school and that sort of thing, writing, doing creative writing projects. Um, so I knew I could do it. Um, and, and I knew I had this, this foundation. So when I made the decision to, uh, to get out, which is when I got back from my last Iraq deployment and took a breath and realized it was time to take care of the family. And uh, then, uh, that's when I really started thinking about this transition and, uh, identifying what I was going to do, which was right. And of course I had some contingency plans because in the military, you always have to have a, some contingency plans out there, but, uh, but I never really put that much effort into them. I just knew that they were there and all my bandwidth was focused on the, on the writing. So, um, I put down six, seven, 
uh, eight different one-page executive summaries on uh, different stories that I wanted to explore. And then I took a breath and thought, okay, which one of these is the most visceral, the most primal, the most hard-hitting, and really the most apt to be noticed by a publishing house in New York? And the one I chose was the one that had a, had the theme of revenge without constraint. Uh, there was some, for whatever reason, I've always loved movies about revenge, books about revenge. And, uh, you know, I think it's a very primal theme that really takes us back to uh, to being around around the campfire and that oral tradition of storytelling. And it's something that resonates with people, especially today, because you you can't if you're wronged somewhere, whether it's by the by the government or somebody in your work, by your neighbor, or whatever. I mean, you. You can't really, you can't do these things. You'll go to jail if you do something. But you can escape into the pages of a book. You can escape for a couple hours in a movie theater and, uh, you know, watch what happens to someone who is uh, who is wronged and uh, who has the skills then to to make it right. So um, I thought there was something there. That was the that was the one that I chose. And I put a little yellow sticky on my computer, which is what uh, I got that from Joseph Camp or from um, uh, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote Gates of Fire, Legend of Bagger Vance, and has a series of, of books on creativity. Uh, one's called the war of art one's called turning pro one's called do the work but um uh, amazing guy amazing author and those books really apply to anything in the creative space it can be sculpting painting his comes from being an author but uh, I, I put that yellow sticky there so i would always come back to that theme of revenge whether it was a, a sentence a paragraph a chapter if something didn't directly or indirectly lead back to that theme then i edited it out and threw it out immediately um so that really kept me on track and i think really was responsible for there not being many uh, edits once it got to new york and i thought oh if someone reads this in new york and i have this you know this amazing editor look at it they can, they'll make a ton of changes and that'll be fine because they're the professionals um there were very very few changes to that uh, that first one and you know one question was like uh we really say this here we really think this here and a third one i don't remember um but uh not very many because i stayed on task and stayed on theme so so yeah that was the that was the first one and was finishing that up as i got out of the military and then i always knew i was going to write too because uh john grisham he wrote a time to kill first and he could not give that book away and then he wrote the firm uh and if you hadn't written the firm then it wouldn't have taken off and tom cruise wouldn't have been in the movie and we wouldn't have a john grisham novel every year since so i always knew i was going to write too and uh in fact i went to africa to research the second one before i'd even sent the first one off to new york and uh i figured hey if both of these don't go then I'll reevaluate my choices here and, and take a breath. But uh, these two are going to get all my energy and effort, um, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make this work. So, uh, so yeah, I got those those two, those first two out there that uh, really ended up resonating with people, and I think that's because uh, I tapped into to emotions and feelings from my experience on the battlefield and applied those to a fictional narrative. So, uh, if someone reads these and uh, thinks, "Oh wow, this this really the feelings this guy's this." Is protagonist is talking about here and are conceptualizing really really sound like they came from a real place that's because they did so um i feel very fortunate that uh that it got to new york then i owe that to brad thor who's another author in the genre and uh he he let new york know it was coming for me and uh yeah so i'll forever be indebted to him for that but uh but then yeah new york uh, my editor in new york read it at simon and schuster she loved it and next thing you know off we go to the races yeah we're well, not wrong about revenge because i mean you're like you said, there's so many areas where someone's a bully or someone's an asshole and you have to bite your tongue, you know, because not 
you can't go around punching everyone in the face is kind of illegal. So, you know, the, those stories, for example, John Wick, you're sitting there like, well, they killed his fucking dog. So, of course, he's going to go murder everyone. You know, that's not reality, but it's that revenge thing again. So, I think it does really resonate with people who are, you know, I think it's that bullying. I think that's why, you know, you became a SEAL, I became a firefighter, is you want to be that protector. And, you know, you and law enforcement obviously are, are addressing bullies a lot more directly. Um, and I think that's why so many people do relate to that kind of revenge story. It's, it's kind of what they wanted to do, but either weren't legally allowed to or maybe physically aren't able to. Yep, no, exactly. And uh, I felt that from a, a very early age. That's why I was on the path. And I think that, that those themes and that uh, that carries over into the storylines. Um, but that second one, I knew I, I had to, uh, so the first one, revenge without constraints called the terminal list. And the second one is called true believer. And that really came from something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006, uh, when I was working for, uh, what can best be described as a, a covert action unit for one of the three letter agencies. And we had, a we were working with an Iraqi special operations unit at the time where we had one of their, uh, squadron commanders was, he was head and shoulders above his peers. Um, and in that part of the world, that, that was hard to find because I, they didn't really encourage um, creative decision making um, because if you made a mistake, it was kind of like off with your head type deal. Um, so just culturally, the most of the people that I work with over there um, in the indigenous units um, were a lot less apt to take risks. Uh, if the plan deviated because of something the enemy did, they were uh, a little more reluctant to adapt on the fly. Um, whereas Americans were more, uh, I think, uh, I guess rewarded even for, for taking risks and being creative and no matter what endeavor, uh, that you're in, but in this case it happens to be the battlefield. So anyway, I became friends with this guy. He was amazing. Um, and I thought, okay, what if I was to fictionalize this and have someone that has been trained by, uh, by U S military and intelligence services, um, be upset that, uh, we left in 2011. And then I took it from there. And what if he took those skills and started applying them against the Western world? Um, so anyway, that's where the, the basis for the second one came in, uh, true believer. And I wanted that one to really be a story of redemption. So where that first one, I had the yellow sticky that said revenge. Uh, this one said redemption. And I really thought about that transition like we just talked about. And I thought about that in, uh, in a fictional sense because the protagonist now needs to transition. He needs to learn to live again. He needs to find that next purpose in life. So I got to take all those feelings and emotions I had from my transition process and apply them to a completely fictional narrative. Um, so I, I did, I thought it would be disingenuous just to pick up and throw him into uh, another adventure without really addressing that theme. Because in the first one, there's some very traumatic events that happened to him, his family, his troop um, of SEALs. So I needed to take the time to develop that character. He needed to learn to live again. That was very deliberate um, on my part. And I got to really tap into that, those experiences on my own. And then I explore that theme of redemption. Um, now this third one, Savage Son, this is the one I've been wanting to write. This is when I talk about those six, seven, eight uh, ideas that I had as far as executive summaries for the first novel. This was one of those. And I knew that it wasn't quite ready. The characters weren't quite ready uh, for me to explore uh, what I wanted to explore in Savage Son. Uh, I needed to develop them first, needed to, needed to introduce them to readers. And uh, the third novel, Savage Son, this is the right time and the right place uh, to really explore this theme of the dark side 
of man through the eyes of the uh, the uh, well through the eyes of the protagonist, but really using that hunter hunted dynamic. And in sixth grade, I read a short story called The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, which was written in 1924. And even back then, I knew that one day I would write a fictional thriller that paid tribute to that novel or to that short story because it was so impactful to me at the time. And uh, Savage Son is that uh, is that novel that pays tribute to, to Richard Connell's classic short story. So I am uh, very excited to get that one out there to everybody. Right, and that comes out April April 14th 14th beautiful now now uh, looking at your your bio is that tied into your trips um with the the uh, game wardens in Africa so there is some there is some crossover but the second novel true believer is really the one where uh, so I went to Mozambique for that one so the camp that I describe in the second novel is uh, is the camp that I was in in Mozambique and I got to talk to uh, the professional hunters over there the trackers over there uh, really about uh, and they were all excited to talk to me all about their country all about the politics all about the Chinese influence the Chinese mining operations the uh, the meat poaching that goes along to uh, to, to supply those mining operations with food the illegal mining operations um, whether it's mineral uh, timber, whatever it may be, um, and then the animals and how the animals are are affected by uh, by those operations um, and by the, really the politics of the of the region. So uh, that was incredible. And then I went back into South Africa uh, while I was writing while I was writing this, finishing the second one, and I really wanted to to get into the backgrounds of some of the people that were in these anti-poaching units and I, I've been fascinated with tracking since I was a little kid by the Salus scouts um, and I just w- wanted to, to well also also passionate about the issue and I wanted to kind of pay it forward a little bit with some of the skills that I had and kind of repurpose some of those skills particularly with the M4 and the Glock uh, and these uh, this anti-poaching unit that I was brought over to help train was uh, transitioning to uh, the M4 and the Glock. So got to go over there and spend some time on the ground with them and really find out that a lot of these guys, and they're older, a lot of these guys, most of these guys were, were older. They've been around for a while and they'd grown up tracking animals really for, for food, for their families. Then they'd gone to, they caught the, the end of the bush wars in the, uh, in the early nineties. They caught the end of those bush wars um, and really, transition from tracking animals to tracking people to tactically tracking people um and then they got back from that and a lot of these governments said oh wow now look at what we have here we have all these people that have been at war for uh for a while and now they what are they going to do um oh you know what we can use these skills for um we can transition them to tracking really in an urban environment and make them part of the national police force so a lot of these guys transitioned then from the bush wars tracking in the uh, in the bush to tracking in urban environments and really being more of a, like a csi type thing because you're not just tracking drops of blood you're trying to get in the head of the person that let's say committed a murder uh, where are they going to go next okay what do they leave behind uh, who are their associates and really building this pattern of life on them and then tracking them that way um and then when they kind of aged out of that, then a lot of them were incorporated into these anti-poaching units, which is where, where I linked up with them uh, in South Africa and got to hear their stories, got to get their backgrounds, got to help out a little bit, got to spend some time you know, around the fire with them. And so a lot of that made it into the pages of, uh, of that, uh, that second novel. 
Now for the third one, I did a trip to Kamchatka, Kamchatka, Russia, and a little different than going to Africa where everybody seemed to want to talk to me about their, uh, their families and their, their country and, uh, and help as much as they could, especially when they found out I was writing a novel. Um, Kamchatka Peninsula, Russia, a little different because, and I thought it would be the same. I thought, oh, they're going to, everybody's going to want to talk to me out here. Well, no, no one wanted to talk to me. And I think that's because uh, in Russia, if someone is asking questions about you and your history and the area, um, for most of Russian history, that wasn't a good thing. Uh, you, you were going off to the camps. Um, so, so they were very hesitant to talk to me. Um, I got, I got a lot of great information and incorporated that into the, into the third novel, but it was a distinct difference and very telling. I thought that, uh, it was that the, everyone in Africa that I met really wanted to talk. And in Russia, it was, uh, it was like pulling teeth. That's fascinating. Especially the, you know, like you said, the transition into, into the anti-poaching, but it's also interesting to hear when you mentioned about the mining, because unless this is, unless I'm completely, you know, uh, uneducated on this subject, from what I understand, a lot of the, the, um, the growth of the Somali pirates came from overfishing of the Somali coast. And so they were, you know, starving and then and it started turning to, to crime. Um, and then now with the poaching, you're seeing like, again, a large corporation making a lot of money on an area that's now forcing, you know, poaching on that side. So did you, did you see that yourself? Was it, was it, was a lot of this poaching really fundamentally coming from an inability to feed or poverty or was it just purely greed? So the ones that we hear about typically, um, elephant, rhino, um, those ones, uh, it's, it's not greed. It is, well, yeah, a lot of greed along the way. So I'll take that back. So yes, greed along the way at the middle, middle areas. Now the person that's going out there to actually do the poaching, you know, they need money to feed their families. Um, and, uh, then you have that everybody from once they get that rhino, once they get that, that elephant, um, then the middle people, all the middlemen that it takes and all the corruption in government that it takes to get um, get that product where it needs to go, which is more valuable than cocaine, than gold, than oil, than really anything else on the black market uh, to get into Asia. Asia, Well, over there, it's not greed they want it for. It is because they think that it has some medicinal purposes uh, and it'll do crazy things like uh, – help their libido or cure cancer, um, that it has these mystical abilities, particularly that rhino horn. Um, and so on that side of it, it is just, it's insane that an animal is going extinct because of some, uh, mythical, crazy, uh, story that's attached to the horn that has no basis in reality. Um, and yes, things go extinct all the time. Um, it's just a part of life, but not because someone in China or Thailand uh, thinks that it's going to help them um, have a better sex life. Um, that's what the real tragedy of all this is. Um, it, it's just, it's not even real, not even working. But uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a huge operation. These criminal syndicates um, are very sophisticated. And when we try to counter them, uh, so I'd read about, okay, because a horn grows back on a rhino. So what they would, what people started doing is cutting the horn off. So they cut the horns, store them. Um, and they thought, okay, well, they, these poachers aren't going to, you know, are going to, aren't going to kill one that doesn't have a horn because there's no value. 
Well, what happened was these poachers would uh, enter these um, preserves at night, typically, uh, start tracking these rhinos. Maybe it takes a couple days to track these rhinos. Um, they're out there. They come across the rhino and it doesn't have a horn. So what do you think they do? They kill it because they don't want to come back the next night and track another one and waste all that time um, and aid. So they're killing them anyway, babies, moms, whatever. Um, uh, so that didn't work. Um, so yeah, it's a, and, and what I saw over there also was that most of the people that are preserving the rhino for future generations are, they're not doing it. Well, maybe long-term they think that maybe laws will change and they'll be able to essentially farm that horn and sell it, um, which is probably something that needs to be explored. But in the short term, they're, there's not a good return on investment for them. It is all, uh, they're putting money in, they're buying helicopters, pilots, anti-poaching units. Um, they have uh, also drones. They have uh, all sorts of different things that uh, that help preserve and protect these rhinos. And in the short term, there's no return on that investment. They're simply doing it um, because they love Africa. They uh, they love these animals and they want to see them preserved for future generations. And that was that was my experience anyway. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Now, just to, to go back. So anyone listening would be like, oh, what the hell? You know, I can't believe they believe that. We're living in a country where people believe that the way to get an erection is take a little pill. You know, and no one's educating them. And actually, if you can't get an erection, that's a terrifying precursor to heart disease. And if you just lose weight and eat well and, and exercise, you will get that erection back. So it's kind of interesting looking at that ridiculousness of the Chinese view of the horn. And actually, we have our own mythology with, with pharmaceuticals now as well. Yeah, there's huge education campaigns also where they take um, actors that are very popular in Asia and uh, do public uh, campaigns where they talk about how what, what's really happening here is that you're essentially destroying a species. Um, and uh, but, you know, that there's so much money involved that uh, I don't think those have the impact that I mean, it, every little bit helps. But uh, it's it's uh, there's just so much money involved and there's and uh, there's such a demand for it in Asia, as long as there's a demand, just like drugs in this country. Uh, you know, there's, there's a reason those cartels exist. Uh, and that's because of the demand here in the United States, uh, for the most part. So without that demand, then, uh, then those cartels don't have the power that they do. Uh, same thing with, uh, with Africa and with the rhino in particular, um, that, uh, it, 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 they just, the demand in Asia is insatiable essentially. And uh, the long-term prognosis for these animals is not good. Yeah, no, it's, it's so sad. And it's funny you say about the cartels. I've talked about the the drug policy in, in Portugal and Switzerland a lot. Um, my, my family actually moved to Portugal and told me about it. They, they reversed their um, drug epidemic in less than a decade just by decriminalizing drug use, not, not smuggling, not selling, but the addicts. They turned the addicts into patients and not criminals. And you cut the head off the snake, supply and demand. If, if you are now, you know, providing places for addicts to get well, you're, you're getting rid of the customer. When the customer's gone, you're getting rid of all the shit bags that are selling it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, that's, <laughs> we've had this war on drugs since what, the late 60s in, in the United States. Um, and it has been, by all measure, a abject failure. Um, because of that demand. And so, and also because we're criminalizing, um, the wrong people, uh, and not exploring that, uh, that decriminalization part of it, not necessarily legalizing part, but decriminalization, which is different 
than uh, than legalizing. So there are some things that need to be explored. Uh, and you'd think we could adapt a little faster, um, seeing what we've seen since the late 60s up until today, uh, as far as the amount of time, energy, effort, money invested in something that uh, that is continues to be a disaster. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I've got one more thing and I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. But I want to make sure we discuss this. Um, the Rescue 22 Foundation. Tell me about that. Yeah. So a friend of mine, John Devine, Devine Canine, he started this uh, uh, with a couple other people, started something called uh, called Rescue 22. And uh, 22 comes from the uh, the number that's been attributed to the number of veterans that take their lives each and every day in this country. Um, and he wanted to do something that helped and to help that and to help stem that tide of veteran suicide. And his background was as a dog handler in the SEAL teams and he was just an amazing, amazing guy. And so he helped, he started 20, rescue 22 with, uh, uh, an army canine veteran and, uh, someone to help them with the administrative side of things. But, uh, what they do is train service and support dogs for veterans. And uh, they asked me to be a, an ambassador uh, for them. And I was honored to be asked um, because uh, when you see some of this data and some of the things that need to be explored, uh, need to be uh, uh, need to be captured as far as uh, service and support dogs and how that can really, um, really help people that are struggling. Um, they're they're uh, they're all they're all in on it and I'm all in to, to help them and help them grow and raise awareness, raise money. Um, anything I can do to help, uh, help stem this tide. Um, you know, people taking that, making that, uh, that permanent uh, solution for uh, what they think is a, is a, uh, a problem that's going to be with them forever. But, um, you know, that dog can help and, uh, yeah, proud to be proud to be a part of it. So yeah, rescue 22. And, uh, they're also training a, uh, a service dog for, for me, or he's training a service dog for me, not rescue 22, but, but uh, John Devine's uh, training a, uh, a service dog for our middle child. So, um, so it's very, cool but uh, uh yeah it's a it's a great organization there's tons of them out there uh, you know a lot of veteran organizations but the ones that i typically support i have some sort of a personal connection to so uh actually i have some some merchandise that went up on the site people were asking about it so i have this thing uh, jackcarusa.com and 100 percent of those profits go to veteran focused organizations that uh that i have a personal connection to uh so it's not just me going online and picking one that has a good name or has a good website it's uh it's uh, i have a touch point with uh, and i have five of them up there right now rescue 22 is one of them um where i have a personal touch point uh with them so they, uh, it's a cool way for me able to to be able to to give back and uh for somebody else to to be able to to contribute as well uh to an organization that they know that i have a touch point with and i describe that uh, uh those personal relationships on the on the website when i describe the the organization so um but yeah rescue 22 just in, doing incredible work out there Brilliant. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you the exact question. Are you going to get one for your little boy? Because you probably heard at one point when we were talking, my dog in the background barking, and uh, <laughs> she's she's not officially a service dog, but I mean, I realized unofficially that yeah, absolutely, she is. You know, I mean, you know, the fire service we we see and do well, see, I wouldn't say we do horrible things, but we certainly see horrible things, and um, yeah, there's just there's no no other way to get that connection that you do with with a dog and i think she's great for me she's great for my my son and my wife and my stepson and um yeah i mean i think if you get the right kind of dog then that relationship is so so healing 
That was amazing. I mean, when you see, I mean, obviously you've seen it uh, in uh, in what you did previously. Uh, I saw it on the battlefield, and I saw it evolve over time from my first Iraq or Afghanistan deployment uh, to what the the dog program later became. Uh, and then do- the third book, Savage Son, has a huge dog component to it as well, uh, which is very. So I was calling the the guys that I know that were in uh, in that that world, John Devine in particular. Uh, hey, can a dog do this? Can they do that? Uh, and uh, just confirming some of the things that I that I thought I knew uh, from my time in uniform. But uh, we see some amazing things. And then out here, I see these avalanche dogs. Oh my gosh, she's incredible with what, what you can train a dog to do, and uh, and how cool they are. So um, yeah, looking forward to getting our our dog back for our for our middle guy and see how that works out. Brilliant. All right. So the first, the first book is the Terminal List. The second one is True Believer, and then Savage Sun is the, the the next one that's coming out. For people listening, where can they find the books? Yeah, anywhere they uh, anywhere books are sold, so they can get them from a local local bookshop. And if they don't have them, they can order them, or they can hop on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever they get uh, wherever they get their books. And then it's in in ebook format as well, and audiobook format uh, also. So if people like the the audio side of the house. That's uh, like I said, that first one was up there for audiobook of the year, and uh, people really enjoy the audio one. So it's available in all formats, and uh, and is out there wherever people get books. Fantastic. All right. So the first of the closing questions, is there a book that you recommend to other people? You know, something that someone else has written. It doesn't have to be about what we discussed today. It can be about anything at all. Yep. So my, my most recommended book is uh, Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. And it was written in 1968. It's, uh, I mean, essentially it's an anti-war novel at its base, but it's also a case study in leadership. So it's historical fiction, um, meaning it has fictional characters uh, in uh, that are a, a part of real-world events. And in this case, it follows two people from just before World War One uh, up until Vietnam. And one of them is an officer, and one of them starts out as an enlisted guy and is, gets a battlefield commission in World War One. And the one that was started out as an officer, he's a he's a political animal, and he is. In fact, I use one word that pays tribute to Once an Eagle in uh, in my first novel in uh, in the Terminal List for those that are are fans. Um, but it really follows these two guys, and the political animal officer is always a little one step ahead of the prior enlisted guy who lives for the mission, lives for uh, his men, um, and uh, to anyone, particularly going into the military, but uh, really. At any stage in life, somebody in, should read this thing in junior high, I think, should read it, revisit it in college, uh, revisit it in the, their mid-20s, because it's a really a case study in leadership. And I used to give it to my guys, um, one, the ones that were interested, and then my junior officers and my senior enlisted, um, and I'd give this book to them, and I'd write a letter that would go in the front um, that was in an envelope that was open, so they could, they could read that. And what that letter said was that at the end of the novel, there was another letter and that one was sealed at the very, because it's a big novel. If you, you can use it as a doorstop or a weapon if you need to, it's pretty thick. Well, it takes it. You got to devote your time, yourself to it. But uh, there was another letter at the end that was sealed for them to read when they got to the end that would give them my perspective on what they had just read. And because I didn't want to um, kind of sway or dilute or influence their reading experience um, by my take on it ahead of time. So once they got to the end, they could open that letter for my my take on Once an Eagle and what they had just read. So that's the one that I uh, that I most typically um, recommend to people. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. And I don't think I've ever had that one recommended either. So I'll add that to my list. So thank you. Um, next question. Is there a movie that you love? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I grew up in the eighties, so, you know, I'm a big, uh, a big movie movie person, although with three kids and everything else going on, we don't get out to, to watch as many as, uh, as we can, uh, as, as I used to anyway, growing up. But, uh, you know, I love all the action movies from the eighties. I'm just, uh, you know, I love lethal weapon. I love die hard. I love first blood, um, particularly first blood because it was adapted from the novel by David Morrell, which he wrote in 1972. And, uh, it's so different than the novel, uh, but it's great. So for me as an author, being able to, to see that, uh, hey, these are almost like two separate projects, uh, or they are two separate projects, but both are wonderful. Um, so I had, so that's a, that's a favorite. Um, you know, of course the, the, the sappy side of me loves, it's a wonderful life with Jimmy Stewart. Um, also a, someone who served his country for, uh, he became a, like a brigadier general in the air force. Um, most people don't, don't remember that, but, uh, so yeah, I'm a big, uh, big movie fan and, uh, yeah, I love the ones that really I watched growing up because they were, uh, really impactful to me and I have such great memories of, of watching them back then. Brilliant. All right. The same question, a documentary. Is there a documentary that you love? Yeah. The, the Battle of Algiers is a, uh, is, uh, is fascinating. Um, uh, of course about the, uh, the French experience in Algeria. Um, so from a, from a, an academic type standpoint, that's a, uh, a an incredible film to watch. So it's not really a document. It's, it's, it's not a documentary. It's a, it's a film, but, uh, but it's almost like a documentary, uh, on hearts of darkness that talks about, uh, uh, apocalypse now and making, making of that film. Um, wow. That's a, that's a powerful one as well. It's almost better than the movie. Uh, I would say than the actual movie. So, um, those are two that, uh, that popped to mind right away. Well, thank you. This is funny. I love these closing questions because I literally will pretty much watch all the suggestions. It's, it's just brought me into the, such a wide spectrum of documentaries and stories. And, you know, yeah, I think documentaries are fast becoming as popular and as well made as, as a lot of the Hollywood blockbusters these days. Yep, no doubt about that. Yeah, like, like I just said, I think it might, Hearts of Darkness might be better than actually Apocalypse Now, which, which is semi depressing. We watched that one as I, uh, every, class watches a movie before hell week and my hell week uh uh we watched apocalypse now which is not a good movie to watch to get you fired up to go into just <laughs> <laughs> the uh, weeks of your life and so uh so, so i'll always kind of associate it with that brilliant all right well then the next question is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Jesus, there's so many great, and that's why podcasts are so great is because it's the two of us talking, but there's a third person in this conversation. And that third person might be a hundred thousand people. It might be 5 million people. Uh, but they all think that they're the third person in this because it's active. You're actively listening and you're engaging, even though you're not speaking, you're actively engaged in that conversation. And that is the, the power of the podcast. Um, so a fascinating one. I don't think he does podcasts, but if you can get him, I would have him on for sure. Uh, David Kilcullen. So he wrote, uh, um, well, he had the 28 articles of counterinsurgency, which came out first when there was kind of a, kind of a, I guess, a not a revolt within the military, but when, when Rumsfeld wouldn't even use the term insurgency, um, you know, junior officers, uh, enlisted guys were seeing something different on the battlefield and needed a way to disseminate their lessons and be able to talk about what was going on on the battlefield so that uh, other people would know what was happening as they stepped into that theater uh, and be more prepared for it. So uh, David Kukulin was a 
Uh, he has a doctorate. Uh, it's in anthropology, but he was an Australian army officer that uh, did a lot of study in East Timor, studied insurgencies uh, before September 11th. So he was well positioned after September 11th um, to both both from a practical standpoint and an academic standpoint to uh, to really study what was going on and give recommendations to how to best counter these insurgencies in, in uh, worldwide and then also in uh, Afghanistan. And Iraq. Uh, he became David Petraeus's lead counterinsurgency advisor for the surge, uh, was Condoleezza Rice's uh, uh, counterterrorism advisor at State Department, and is just a fascinating, fascinating guy um, and can talk about warfare insurgencies uh, at any level. Um, and just, yeah, David Kokolan, uh, his, his books that have come out since that those 28 articles are uh, Accidental Guerrilla, um, and uh, one called Counterinsurgency, one called Out of the Mountains, uh, one called Blood Year. But uh, yeah, I would look him up and uh, see if you can get him on. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Yeah, he sounds absolutely fascinating, so I'll definitely work on that. Um, all right, so the last question before we just make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress these days? Oh my gosh, I don't think I decompress these days. Um, <laughs> uh, it, right now it's a full-on sprint, uh, so I feel like I just can't kind of pick my head up, really. But I guess it would be get on the mountain with the kids. Uh, anything that I do with the kids is that decompression because I try to put everything down, put the phone down, close the computer, uh, and really be present. Well, so something that I need to work on is to be present when I'm actually here uh, and not be thinking about that next chapter in the book, not solving that problem on the page uh, kind of the way I would on the battlefield uh, because I'm not on the battlefield anymore. And I can take the time <laughs> to figure these things out on the written page as I, as I work through these problem sets uh, uh, in a literary sense. So um, so that's uh, decompressing with the kids, uh, watching a movie with the kids, getting on the mountain skiing with the kids, getting them on a river uh, where you're forced to put down your phone and your computer because there's no cell service in these river canyons and uh, get out rafting with the kids. So uh, that's pretty much what I do to, to decompress. And um, yeah, people can find me at uh, Jack Carr USA on the social channels. And I'm most active on Instagram, uh, trying to share a little bit of my journey with people if they're interested uh, and that stuff repost to Facebook, but three different platforms was just too much. Uh, so I had to pick and I picked Instagram and, uh, and Twitter. So those are the two where I'm most active, but Instagram gives you a little more to, to work with in that sense. So uh, that's where I'm most active. So Jack Carr USA on those. And I try to get back to everybody that, that reaches out because I feel so fortunate that, uh, that I'm in this position and that the books are resonating with people and I look at social media as essentially as my, as that's my storefront. That's if I owned a you know, general store in a small town and someone walked in, um, then I'd, I'd interact with that person and I'd give them directions if they were looking for directions or I'd point them towards the milk if they're looking for milk. And, uh, that's kind of how I view social media is, uh, that's, that's where, uh, where I interact with, uh, with people that are interested in, uh, in reading or the journey or overcoming adversity or whatever it, it may be. So Jack Carr USA there. And then, uh, official is the website. And if people are interested in more about the kind of the weapons that I use downrange or the weapons that are used in the books, uh, uh, there's a lot of that there in the blog on the website. And I try to keep that, uh, fairly fresh. And every month I'll do a reading list, uh, six books I'll pick. That I'll talk about and how they influenced me or where I went at, where I was and what I was doing when I read them. So there's a, a personal touch point there. And, uh, that comes out, uh, at some point during the, during the month. So, uh, people can go there to find that as well. 
Excellent. Well, I just want to thank you so much. The, the first two books were, were fantastic. I highly recommend it, everyone. Thank you so much to David for sending them. Um, the Savage Sun, I'm looking forward to, to reading when that comes out as well. Um, and I might even have to pick your brains down the road. I'm trying to finish a book I'm writing, not, not a fiction book, but a kind of, uh, semi autobiography lessons learned type book on on this journey that i've been on um and i've already some of the interviews you've done some of the things that you've talked about like just write the damn thing <laughs> this is advice that i needed to hear as well so um but thank you so so much for for taking the time it's been an amazing interview and i know that people are going to get a lot out of hearing your uh, your story uh, well thank you so much for having me on it's a, it's an honor to be here and let's do it again sometime 